Um, if you've been hanging around here for the last several months, since uh, actually since December, we've been going through Matthew's gospel a chapter at a time. And, and throughout this series, we've been hearing the whole of the chapter read out loud. And um, I don't know how often you hear that in churches today, but we just want to pay attention to the words of Jesus all throughout this series. We want to be attentive to what he has to say to us about what being a follower of Jesus means. Um, at this point in our series, we're in Matthew chapter 23. If you've been here the last few weeks, you'll have known that we've, Jesus has been in conflict with the Pharisees. They've been locked in this argument that's been ongoing for the last few chapters. And now Jesus turns his attention away from talking to the Pharisees and he's explaining what's going on now to his disciples. I'm going to invite now Frick to come and I just want to pray for him as he begins here as well. God, I thank you so much for, uh, for Frick and his commitment to you. God, I know that that's his heart as he wants to follow you. He wants to see those around him follow you as well. So thank you for the time that he's spent and the effort to, uh, to study this text and to prepare this message. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us as a church today, that we might be shaped and formed as your followers. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So I first of all just want to say that it's, an, again, such an honor to be able to share a message with all of you this morning. Um, I must say, once a year, we get our little part to, to share a message going through this. And, and I must say, I'm always just so impressed, or I don't think any of you know just how much work the pastors put in in our church here to do this week after week after week. The thing that is really good for me is that going through a series like this is it forces me to look at passages in the Bible that I would normally not delve into. I would normally not read through Matthew 23 and spend more than five minutes on it. And, and going through it, what we're going to be doing today, it really forces us to look into, into a little bit deeper. My hope and prayer is that we will all learn from the text together and um, that Jesus will be honored in everything that we do. So why don't you pray with me this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning for the opportunity to meet together and for the privilege to have your Holy Word to guide and instruct us in our ways. Please speak to us this morning and may I become less so that you can be the only one receiving glory and honor this morning. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ we pray this. Amen. Now I have a friend I've been playing golf with for the last 12 or 13 years. And we would play fairly regularly, and, and this friend of mine is a self-proclaimed atheist. He does not believe in God, he does not believe in religion. He has his own firm set of beliefs, but Christianity for him is silliness. The other day we were playing and we got up on the tee box and he made this statement which sort of made me think, and he said, you know what, I can believe and follow what JC is saying and doing, but I cannot believe in the church or in religion. And in those words, he summed up the message of this morning. Um, Jesus, in his earthly ministry up to this point, has been the most vocal critic of dead religion. And in this passage that we're going to be working on today, he really expands on that. Um, the, the other thing with it is that even though Jesus spoke these words about 2,000 years ago, there's a lot of sort of food for thought for us today in the way that we practice our Christian faith. Jesus, when he was making these statements, which we're going to be reading on in a little bit, he was making all these statements public. 
uh, as a warning, and, and he is warning his disciples against the all-too-human reactions that sometimes make up religion. It is generally accepted that a lot of evil in the world has been perpetrated under the banner of religion. And in these words of Jesus this morning, he is confronting these evils head-on as he looks into the heart of the Pharisees. It is also a warning for all of us in our devotion and to make sure that we are pure in our motives. So let's open up our Bibles this morning to Matthew 23, and we'll start by reading the first 12 verses. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So before we go further this morning, let's look a little bit about the background regarding the Pharisees. It is important for us to understand who Jesus is talking about, um, as there are some similarities in all of us. William Barclay describes the Pharisees as follows in his daily study Bible. He says, The Pharisees then were two things. First, they were dedicated legalists. Religion to them was the observance of every detail of the law. But second, and this needs never to be forgotten, they were men in desperate earnest about the religion, for no one would have accepted the impossibly demanding task of living a life like that unless he had been in the most deadly earnest. They could therefore develop at the one and the same time all the faults of legalism and all the virtues of complete self-dedication. A Pharisee might either be an arrogant legalist or a man of burning devotion to God. So to say this is not to pass a particularly Christian verdict on the Pharisees, Barclay continues, for the Jews themselves passed that very verdict. In the Talmud, which is the ancient Jewish document that serves as the interpretation of the law of Moses and can be seen as the fence built around the law, the, the Talmud distinguishes seven different kinds of Pharisees. The first one we encounter is the shoulder Pharisee. Now, he was a meticulous he was meticulous in his observance of the law, but he wore his good deeds on his shoulder. He was out for a reputation for purity and goodness. True, he obeyed the law, but he did so in order to be seen by men. Then there was the wait a little Pharisee. So he was the Pharisee who could always produce an entirely valid excuse for putting off a good deed. He professed the creed of the strictest Pharisees, but he would always find an excuse for allowing practice to lag behind. He spoke but he did not do. The third one was the bruised or bleeding Pharisee. Now the Talmud speaks of a plague of self-afflicting Pharisees. So these Pharisees received their name for this reason. Women in, in, in Palestine at that stage had a very low status, and no really strict orthodox teacher would be seen talking to a woman in public, even if it was his wife or his sister. 
Some of these Pharisees would take that even further. They would not even allow themselves to look at a woman on the street. So therefore, in order to avoid doing that, they would shut their eyes, and as they're walking, bump into buildings and, and objects, um, and they were all bruised and, and, and bleeding. And for them, it was a good sign to be all bleeding all around because it showed that you were really holy. Um, the next one um, is what they described as the humpback Pharisee. So these men, they walked in such humility, ostentatious humility, that they were like hunchback all along. Um, they were so humble or looking like they were so humble that they wouldn't even lift up their feet when they would walk. They would just sort of slide them along. So much so that they would trip over every little obstruction. Um, their humility was self-advertising. Um, there was nothing honorable about it. Next we find the ever-reckoning Pharisee. Now this kind of Pharisee was forever reckoning up his good deeds. Um, he was forever striking a balance sheet between himself and God for belief that every good deed that he did would put God a little bit further in his debt. He saw religion in terms, or to him religion was always to be reckoned in terms of a profit and a loss account. Then there was the timid or fearing Pharisee. He was always in dread of divine punishment. He was therefore always cleansing the outside of the cup and the platter so that he might seem to be good. He saw religion in terms of judgment and life in terms of terror-stricken evasion of the specific judgment. And then finally we had the God-fearing Pharisee. So he was the Pharisee who truly, really and truly loved God and who found his delight in obedience to the law of God, however difficult it might be. So this was the Jews' own classification of the Pharisees, and it is to be noted that there were six bad types and one good one. So not all the Pharisees were bad. So as we read this morning, the first thing that we need to notice in this passage um, is that Jesus is not throwing away the Old Testament law. He says in verse 2 and 3 that the Pharisees are sitting in Moses' seat and that the crowd need to be careful to do everything that what they are told. They may ask me, well, what is Moses' seat? Um, in the synagogues at that stage, they had a stone seat in the front where the person were doing the teaching the day would sit in that place and do the teaching, almost like we would have with the pulpit or up front. Um, and Jesus says that the Pharisees should be respected because of their position, and that the fact that they were teaching the law was correct. The problem was that the Pharisees went further than just teaching the law. They would build this fence around the law, or the Talmud, which we talked about. Um, the idea being is that if you can stay on the outside of the fence, you would not break the law. The problem was is that they ended up seeing the fence as bigger or more important than the law itself. Um, so Jesus had a problem with the fact that the Pharisees would put all these heavy loads and burdens on the people. And to make things even worse, those same Pharisees wouldn't even do, lift a finger to do anything about it themselves. Uh, Jesus had a big problem with that. Now I remember when I was in medical school way back when, um, that our vice dean at that stage, she was from the physiology department, they had this practice or this policy in her department when she was still there. And it's very good advice for all of us in the medical field to follow this. Their policy was is that whatever test you ended up ordering on a patient, say a bone marrow biopsy, which is an extremely painful sort of biopsy you do on the side of the hip, whenever you were to order a test, you first had to have that test done to yourself. Um, so it wasn't uncommon in their lab to have students punching holes in each other's 
pelvises to, to get biopsies. But the, the principle behind it is fair in that saying that you will think twice before you order something just because. Um, it'll put yourself in the patient's shoes because now you would know what they're going through. Um, and in the case that we're talking about here, the Pharisees were very good about talking the talk, but they were notoriously bad about walking the walk. Now, I think that is something that bugs me personally to no end. And anyone that is not Christian would bug them too. They would see that as Christians, very often we are able to say things that we're supposed to be doing, but we don't do it ourselves. Um, we should be able to, in our actions, show much more than what we are saying. Sure, we are not perfect yet, but there should be some fruit in our lives before we even venture about talking. It's also important for us to confess our shortcomings to Jesus and ask his help to live a life daily that will bring him honor. Jesus was also angry about the fence that we talked about, that the Pharisees put around the law. Now, throughout Matthew, Jesus has demonstrated that only he is the fulfillment of the law and that, um, and that there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to fulfill the requirements of the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that the law reaches further than just our outward actions, but also deals with our hearts and with our motives. Our actions will reflect what is in our hearts, and in order to be right with God, we need to accept Jesus as our only Savior and allow him to change our hearts. Jesus asks of us to accept his burden and to be made free from sin. In Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, we read these words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These words were in sharp contrast to the burdensome teachings of the Pharisees. The second thing that Jesus mentions about the Pharisees is the fact that they did their works to be seen and praised by men. Now I want you to think about this little scary thought. What if the Pharisees had access to social media? Um, can you imagine the tweets and the posts and the pictures and the selfies on Instagram if they had that? Now, obviously the Pharisees didn't have access to those modalities, but what they did have was they would broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels, tassels on their garments. Now, if you're like me, the first question I had was, well, what is a phylactery? Um, a phylactery um, was a small leather box with tiny scrolls of scriptures that was supposed to be tied to the arm and the head of leather straps. And we heard a little bit about that this morning with the dedication. Um, let's read this um, in Deuteronomy 11, verse 18 and 19. Um, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. So when we read this passage in Deuteronomy, we can see that the Pharisees were not only missing the intent behind these words, but by making their phylacteries bigger, they also tried to make themselves appear uber-spiritual. The Pharisees were also really quick about posting their good deeds um, to, for everyone else to see and praise. Jesus has already taught in the Sermon on the Mount the correct way to do good deeds as it reflects a heart that is honoring and dependent on God. Listen to the words of Matthew 6, verse 1 to 4. 
Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus goes further on to discuss the concept of self-appointed titles. So he warns against the temptation to be called rabbi, father, or teacher. Jesus is the ultimate teacher, and to him should be all glory. Anything else that takes away from that glory goes back to the original sin of pride. Um, we should resist, as, as followers of Jesus, resist that temptation to, um, to have self-appointed titles. Jesus, in this passage, portrays the opposite to that um, in this form of leadership. He says that the greatest amongst his disciples should be their servants. Jesus himself, as fully God, demonstrated this a few days after this words in the washing of the disciples' feet and then dying on a Roman cross for our sins. Now, throughout this passage, we can see that Jesus' anger is building against the religious leaders of the days. They were supposed to lead the people into an understanding that the Messiah is coming, and through the signs and wonders that Jesus had done in his earthly ministry, it should have been blatantly obvious that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Despite all of the overwhelming evidence, the eyes of the Pharisees were blinded, and to make matters worse, they were leading the people away from the only one that could save them. This leads to the second part of this passage this morning. It has been described as the Sermon of Woes. Now, I know that doesn't sound that exciting, but we'll get into that. Um, in this part, Jesus is pronouncing a series of seven woes related to the behavior of the Pharisees that loosely mirror the series of eight blessings we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. The words of Jesus is deeply prophetic, similar to what the prophets in the Old Testament were when they proclaimed judgment upon the people of Israel. Let's read the words in Matthew 23, verse 13 to 36. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourself do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say to anyone, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Now imagine for a moment being close by when Jesus was speaking these words. I think as Canadians we would all be a little bit uncomfortable with the confrontation, um, as Jesus was pulling no punches here. Um, And as he's doing this, you can almost sense the anger building up from the Pharisees in response to this. So what were some of the key things that Jesus was angry about in this passage? First of all, Jesus spoke against those who shut up the kingdom of God in the first woe. Jesus came to allow us access to God the Father and to help restore that initial intimate relationship for which we were created. Jesus already spoke against those who would hinder others to have their relationship with him in Matthew 18, verse 6, where it says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Religious leaders are supposed to lead people towards God, not put up barriers and stumbling blocks limiting access. The second woe speaks about leading converts on the wrong path. The Pharisees did not lead people towards God, but they led people to their own specific brand of religion. Those of us who are followers of Jesus always need to examine ourselves and make sure that we are leading people towards the person of Jesus Christ and not to our own set of beliefs. The third woe speaks against making false and deceptive oaths. Now, as we read, the Pharisees had this elaborate system of oaths and loopholes to get what they wanted. When I read it the first time, it almost seemed to me like when we were in kids in in elementary school and you would make a promise to a buddy and you would sort of cross your finger behind your back so that you wouldn't have to honor that. Jesus has no time for these games that will ultimately lead to pain and distrust. In Matthew 5, 37, he said, But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than this is from the evil one. The fourth woe deals with the fact that the Pharisees were great at majoring in the minors. The Pharisees in this illustration were so focused on the details of tithing that they would count out a tenth of anise seeds for fear of missing one. Jesus uses hyperbole to illustrate this, this point further in the next illustration. The Pharisees, would, when they were drinking their wine, would strain it through cloth to make sure that there were no little insects or gnats in it. 
the reason I did that was not because they were worried about looking foolish, coughing on it like a hairball, a cat with a hairball. They were more worried about the fact that if they were to ingest the gnat, the gnat would not have been bled in the kosher way. Therefore, they would be um, breaking the law. Jesus says that the Pharisees were so good about doing that, but they would have no problem swallowing a camel, which was the largest unclean animal in Palestine at that time, whole without any worries. Um, the warning for us is to major in the majors. Followers of Jesus should focus on the central aspects of our faith and of what God expects of us. God has made this argument in the Old Testament regarding sacrifices through the prophet Micah in Micah 6 verse 8. And I think we know this verse. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? If we as a church were able to keep on majoring on the majors, we would not focus on things that would divide us, but keep on in love to support and encourage one another to do good things. We will bring honor to God by doing that. The fifth and the sixth woes I'm going to put together and says that it talked about the disconnect between the outward appearance of holiness versus the internal reality of sin and corruption. A good friend of mine in university once explained it like this. So imagine you've, you have a cabin at the lake, and after the winter you go and open up the cabin, and you open up and you're busy cleaning it, and you have a kettle and you want to put up some water to boil, to make a pot of tea. But as you get to the kettle, it is all filled with flies on top. Now you have two options. One is you can sort of shoo it away and swat it and things like that. Odds are that the fly would just come, flies would just come and sit back on the kettle. The better thing to do would be to plug the kettle in. And as the water heats and boils, the flies will one by one pop off. Um, the only way we can make our outsides appear righteous is by being plugged into the source of our salvation, Jesus. Our inside and our outside should always be the same. The seventh woe speaks about the persecution of the prophets. The Pharisees were very vocal and appearing holy in saying that they would never have killed the prophets like their forefathers did. Jesus confronted this in an aggressive manner by calling them a brood of vipers. They were about to do the same with the Son of God in their own midst. They were so full of themselves that they did not recognize the promised Messiah standing right in front of them. Now there's a bit of a warning in this passage for all of us. It would be easy for us sitting here looking back at the Pharisees and say that we would never deny or reject Jesus when we were confronted with the reality of the fact that Jesus is God. But are we not doing just that at times? Are there not times when it is easier for us to deny the fact that Jesus wants and deserves to be ruler of our lives rather than doing the things that please ourselves? Can we honestly judge the Pharisees? Jesus continues in Matthew 23, 37-39 with these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus finishes this passage with an emotional cry for Jerusalem and also for us. In the Gospel of Luke, the corresponding passage um, says that Jesus actually wept as he looked over Jerusalem and uttered these words. 
Jesus deeply loved these people that he was talking about, and he so deeply loves each and every one of us. He wants us to be gathered as chicks underneath his wings. It is true that some of the people of Jerusalem at that stage decided not to be gathered into a closer relationship with Jesus, and that is the same for some of us here today. So what are the benefits of being gathered underneath his wings? First of all, as we are gathered under his wings, we will experience community. We will be gathered together in fellowship, people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, all races. Jesus does not want division for us. He wants us to experience a relationship with each other and with him, just like Jesus is in relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, if we were gathered underneath his wings, we will also experience his protection and his comfort. Paul sums it up in Romans 8, verse 31 and 35. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? There is no greater comfort than knowing that we are loved, cared for and protected by the God of the universe. Even greater than this is the knowledge that, uh, that it is an internal comfort. It is a relationship that never ends, and when our time here on earth comes to an end, the story will only continue. Jesus also wants to shower us with his love and help us to grow, just as the hen would do for her chicks. Jesus is saying in this image that this is the way he felt about Jerusalem, and that that is also the way that he feels about each and every one of us. He has been doing the gathering through multiple ways, um, through making himself known through the Bible, through the prophets of old and preachers of today, and also through circumstances. Um, life circumstances will sometimes point us towards God. And unfortunately, a lot of those circumstances are usually the hard ones. Um, with all of these gatherings, there really is no excuse for any one of us to say that we have not heard his call. But we can see in this passage that despite all the calls that the people of Jerusalem received, and despite all the benefits to be had from following Jesus, they still refused. Why would the Almighty God stand for this refusal? Because he loves us enough to respect our own free will. He does not want to force me and you to follow him. He wants to have that real relationship with us, because of, and because of that, he's willing to stand and to be rejected rather than forcing us to love him. Jesus knew what was to follow for the people of Jerusalem, and he knows what is to follow for us if we do not put our trust and lives in his hands. It is because of this that Spurgeon writes, What a picture of, of pity and disappointed love the king's face must have presented when, with flowing tears, he uttered these words. Jesus is standing before you this morning with arms opened wide, he wants to bring you underneath his wings to give you love, safety, fellowship, comfort, and eternal life. He has paid the price already for all the sins you could have done. He is just asking that you exercise your own free will and come to him so that he can give you rest. If you are thinking about making that free choice this morning, please feel free to meet with one of us up after the service up front. We'll be glad to pray with you. Now, as I'm going to call the worship team up, um, back up, let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the fact that you want to gather us close to you and give us your eternal comfort and protection. Dear Lord, thank you that you have given us free will 
and I pray that we will be responsible with that gift. Please continue to work in us to see your wonderful gift and to respond to that. For those of us that are followers of you already, please show us to be sincere and responsible in leading others to you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.